Hi, it's Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. One of the best ways that you can do this is by reading my newest book, Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. Before you get started with today's message, I wanted to let you know that it's now available wherever you buy your books, whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I wrote Poverty, Riches, and Wealth to help you move from the never-enough mentality into a true kingdom abundance from the inside out. Check it out, and I hope you enjoy this message. Well, I'm glad you're here today, and uh, we're going to have a really great time. Um, why don't we, are you still passing the baskets here? I can't tell. Um, why don't you just grab a hand and let's pray. I guess if you're passing baskets, you can't do that. That's all right. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you're doing today. And we just pray for you to uh, help these people know I'm right. <laughs> Even when we're politically incorrect. On a serious note, Lord, we just pray for revelation. We just pray for you to open our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I am probably going to teach the most politically incorrect message that I've ever preached. Unfortunately, when you just preach the gospel now, it's politically incorrect. So I was thinking, as I shared last, in last service, I was thinking on the way back, like, I don't know why this is politically incorrect, but it is. I want to talk to you about the secrets of a great marriage. And um, I, we, Kathy and I had our 43rd wedding anniversary, July 19th. And if you're new to our audience and Bethel TV audience, uh, you'll, you probably have heard this story unless you are new. And that is, you know, I met Kathy when she was 12, laying on a raft in a bikini. She did not look 12. Let me just describe it like that. <laughs> Nothing else shall be said on, on that issue. My, my daughter-in-law is coaching me by the Holy Spirit in the front row. She's like. And uh, we got engaged when Kathy was 13. And we got married when she was 17. Her parents insisted that she graduate from high school before we get married. So she graduated a year early to catch the prize. <laughs> And so we have four kids and eight grandkids and counting. And counting. No, Lauren wants you to know that she's not pregnant yet. And I also have another son who's not married, so whoo, I could have a tribe. I mean, who's ever heard of a tribe of eight? You've got to have at least 12 to have a tribe. So anyway, and all I care is we have more kids than the Johnsons. Anyway, uh, I'm not competing. I just want to have more kids than the Johnsons. And so um, several, uh, probably a couple years ago, I wrote this on a Facebook page, and I kind of want to open with this, like, about marriage. Like, what's, how, who should marry? And I, and I wrote this, don't marry the person you fall in love with. A fall is an accident, not the act of your will. If you fell once, chances are you can fall again for someone else. Grow in love because what you did on accident will need to be done on purpose. A great marriage is never an accident. It's a covenantal choice that two people make with each other for life. It's only in the soil of sacrifice that the, garden, that the garden of true love can take root in the hearts of its companions. So how many understand that there's a big difference between cohabiting and marriage? And I have lots of friends that have you know, two and three children together and they're not married. I'm like, hey, why don't you guys get married? They're like, it's just a piece of paper. 
I'm really, if it's just a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? I'll tell you why you don't sign it, because cohabiting says, I'm in this for what I can get. See, cohabiting says, I'm in this for what I can get, and I don't want to sign a piece of paper that metaphorically says, I'll be here forever, because I use the fear of abandonment to get you to do what I want you to do. So I, I never want you to think I'll be here forever because I'm only here as long as it benefits me. But see, marriage is a death march to a life camp. <laughs> it's so funny, you know, when people exchange vows, they're like, you know, I've done several weddings, and they're like, for better, for worse, for richer, or for poor, and they're smiling. Because they're not thinking about their words, they're thinking about the honeymoon, they're like, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in death. It's like you just made a covenant to be together forever, no matter what happens. And marriage says, I've come into this relationship to lay down my life so that you'll have life. I've come here to give, not to get. Now, the way a great marriage works, of course, is that I lay down my life for you, and you, you as my spouse, you lay down your life for me. The goal in marriage, the way we get to our goal, isn't I fight my way, and I find my way, and it's all about me. I help you find your way, and you help me find my way. You live for me, and I live for you. And so I'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and I want to just begin by understanding what marriage is. Thomas Hardy said this, the fundamental error of matrimony is often having based a permanent contract on a temporary feeling. He says the fundamental error with some marriages is that people base a permanent contract on a temporary feeling. How many know you are not the way you feel? How I feel isn't how I am. Okay. <laughs> Do you notice how much stress that caused in the room? <laughs> so let's go to Genesis chapter 1 and this talk about, let's just start from the beginning. And we'll go to verse 24. We're kind of picking up in the middle of a conversation that God is having here. And he said this in verse uh, 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Can you say after their kind, please? Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. Help me. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the fields after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. The next verse so let me just kind of put it to you like this. God said eight times, and we didn't read all of them. God said eight times, let the beast, be, let the beast reproduce after their kind. The birds after their kind. The fish after their kind. The beasts of the fields after their kind. The cattle after their kind. And then after eight times of saying after their kind, after their kind, after their kind, the very next verse God says, and let us make man in our image. And the, and, and, and the, uh, the idea is after their kind. How many know you were made after the God kind? You were not an evolutionized amoeba. You weren't once an ape. Now, some of you are like, I believe in evolution. Maybe evolution, but not, but not maybe interspecies evolution. But I want to say to you, when you say, I believe I came from an, uh, I'm an evolutionized amoeba, you're taking away the origin of your creator, and you're saying, I'm just like an animal, I'm just like a plant. I'm just like anything else God created. And the truth is, no, they were made after their kind, but you were made after the God kind. 
In Ephesians chapter six, you know how Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood? And then he goes on to name four sources of world forces of darkness, principalities that are against us. First of all, I wanna clarify. I do not believe that Paul was talking about struggling against a demon. I think Paul was talking about struggling against world forces of darkness. There is a big difference between struggling against a demon and struggling against a principality. And I propose that Paul, being a world changer, is struggling against world forces of darkness. And the, so Paul names four world forces of darkness that he's struggling against. The very first one, if you have the New American Standard Bible, the very first one is named ruler. Now, if you have an NIV, I think it says principality. But the point is, is that the very first prince that's against Paul, that he's warned against, is actually the word ruler, the word principality, the first demonic force that he's, that he's warring against, that he's struggling against. The original Greek word is the word origin. Are you with me? Okay, follow me for a minute. Paul said in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, he's talking to the Philippians, and he goes, and he says, at my first preaching, the two words first preaching are the one Greek word, origin. Are you with me? When Paul said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against origin, the word origin, the word first preaching, it's the same word. And here's where I'm going. There is a prince that redefines the origins of mankind. Paul called it in Ephesians, I'm sorry, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. There's, he said our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against speculations. There is an origin, and that this prince, the job of this prince, if you can follow me, is to redefine the origins of God. It says, for instance, did you really, are you really created in the image of God? Or maybe you were just evolutionized. How many of you know, as soon as I say I believe in that kind of evolution, how many of you know I've taken away the nature of man being divine? And I've taken away the image of man not being in God's image, but in the image of something created instead of the creator himself. It says, is that fetus really a baby? Oh no, it's just tissue. Until it passes out of the womb, then it instantly becomes a person. Were you really created as a boy? Maybe you could be a girl. Were you really a girl? Maybe you could be a boy. And see, origin takes away logic and reason. It makes really brilliant people who are normally you would trust in any other subject suddenly think unreasonable things in the name of reason. There is a spirit that is redefining marriage. And let me tell you one of the things it does. It says men and women are the same. See how quiet it gets in here? Why don't we just say this, Chris, we love you, even when we disagree with you. There we go. Now, what I'm going to share in the next half hour, I'd like you to give me a little grace and know that these are, even though I may share them as dogmatic principles, I'd like you to know that I don't think there's strong lines around these. Are you with me? Okay, so let's go to Genesis chapter 
2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from dust. He formed man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. By the way, you'll notice that God never breathed into the animals. He did form them from the same dirt, but he did not breathe into them the, the breath of life. Okay, Adam was formed from dirt. Formed. Eve was fashioned. I'm telling you, it's in the, it's in the original language. It's two different words. Adam was formed from dirt. Eve was fashioned from a rib. She's a second generation creation. Come on, ladies, you can help me break the ice a little bit. Thank you. So we have Adam formed from dirt, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So now God's looking at Adam and remember that Adam, God would come in the cool of day and, and, and be a companion to Adam. But when God wasn't there with Adam in the cool of the day, Adam was alone. He was lonely, if you will. And God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create a suitable helper for him. First of all, I'd like to point out that the word helper there is used 12, uh, sorry, it's used two times for woman, wife, and it's used 13 times for God and one time for man. So when God says, I'm going to find Adam a helper, he's not thinking slave. Help me. He's not saying, Adam, if you had someone you can boss around, you'd feel better about yourself. He's saying, I need to find you someone who's like me when I'm gone. Now, you'll like this part. The word suitable is actually the word opposite or corresponding. He's saying, Adam, I need to find you someone who's not like you that you need. So they look amongst the animals. Now, just to be, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be careful how we say this, but Adam is naming the animals, and God says he did not find a suitable helper among the animals. Now, remember Genesis 1, God said, let everything reproduce after its kind. So just so we're, we'll be vague here, but obviously God wasn't looking for Adam to reproduce or procreate with the animals because he already established that everything should procreate after its kind. Are you with me? So I'd propose that God wasn't looking for someone to procreate with. Adam could already procreate. But Adam, God was looking for someone who could fill the hole, the God hole, that, that, that left when God left the garden. The emptiness, the loneliness. He doesn't find it among the animals. And by the way, I want to say to everyone, nature will never take the place of a woman. Nature will never take the place of a man. Okay. And that's a man who loves his dog. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh in that place. And the Lord God fashioned, help me ladies, fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken, help me, out of the man. She was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, point two, or three, or whatever point I'm on. 
A man cannot get in touch with his feminine side because he doesn't have a feminine side. At some point, the woman was in the man. How do we know that? Because he took her, God took her out of the man, so somewhere she was in the man. I get in trouble for this all the time. I'm only quoting the Bible. And the woman was taken out of the man. So that's the scripture. And God brings the woman who was taken out of the man to him. So he fashioned her in some other place because it says, and he brought her to him. I would consider it being heaven. He brings the woman, and remember that Adam once had the woman in him. This is all scripture. I haven't, I haven't got off the path yet. I'll tell you when I do. <laughs> Adam was both male and female, or at least he was both man and woman, because the woman was taken out of the man, so therefore the woman had to be in the man. When Adam wakes up, and I believe he was the first man ever slain in the spirit, <laughs> at least it fits my Pentecostal heritage, you get up off the floor and like, whoa, man. Adam wakes up. <laughs> We're streaming, be careful. Adam wakes up, and the woman who was once in him is not in him. Now, this is still scripture. Now, this is conjecture, this is Chris's rendition of what happened. He wakes up and God brings the woman to him and he sees what was once in him standing before him and he says, I have to get that back. And he begins to immediately prophesy. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman because you were taken out of the man. And the next verse says, and a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be become one flesh. What's Adam doing? He's immediately saying, that thing that was taken out of me, that person that was taken out of me, I need that back in me. And God says, here's the way I'll solve your loneliness. I'll take you, I will break you in half, and now you'll need her like you need me. Are you following me? And how many understand that he's, he begins to prophesy? How do we know he's prophesying? Because Adam has no mother or father. And if you think he's talking about God, how many know a man doesn't leave God to connect to his wife? So he's prophesying about the future, and he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I'd like to propose to you that Adam isn't just prophesying about them cleaving, he's also prophesying about who will pursue who. He said, my man shall leave his father and mother. I don't think he's saying, well, man will leave his father and mother and will live in your parents' house. He's prophesying who will be the pursuer. Are you with me? And who, the, who will be the receiver? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> See, in verse 15, the Lord says to, to, to him, the Lord took Adam, put him in the garden to cultivate. Everybody say cultivate. And to keep it. Cultivate and to keep it. How many understand that as soon as Adam was put in the garden, he was given a task, a purpose. He was to cultivate and he was to keep it. He was to protect the garden and cultivate the garden. <laughs> Eve is the womb man. Okay, here we go. I oh, know I'm getting a little nervous. This is where it gets a little ugly. First, I'd like to make the point that she was taken from his side, not from his foot. And she wasn't also taken from his head. Help me, guys. She was 
taken from his side so that she could stand alongside of him, not under him and not over him. They were together commanded to what? Subdue the earth. They were co-leading. Are you following me? She was his other half, or he was her other half, however you want to say it. God doesn't create person one way and give them a desire for something else. When God creates, God creates a body that's a manifestation of a person's purpose. When God gives a woman breasts and a womb, he doesn't do that without causing them to be a nurturer. Are you with me? She's a nurturer and she's a mercy giver and she, call, she is the incubator. So Adam is a cultivator and, he's a, and she's an incubator. Are you with me? Adam gives her sperm, she gives him a baby. He brings home fish, she makes a meal. She, she, he gives her crap, she gives him. <laughs> God knows. I don't know how many times in counseling sessions I've heard like, what did I do? I only did this little thing. I'm like, yeah, she, she's gonna incubate what she does so let me say Adam can't get in touch with his feminine side because he doesn't have a feminine side the only way he gets in touch with his feminine side is when he marries now let me say if you're not supposed to be married and Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 if you if you're called not to marry it's a good thing so let me say this but he also said that it's a gift from God which means you need a gift to not marry because you were born to marry. In fact, so convinced were the Greeks that you should marry that there's only one word for man and husband. And there's only one word for wife and woman. In other words, the Greeks said a woman was made to be a wife and a man was made to be a husband. We don't even have an extra word for it. Okay. <laughs> so what I'm getting at is this. If you're not supposed to marry, don't marry. And ask God for a gift so that you can live whole because of Jesus. But most of us were born to marry. And the way that we get in touch with our feminine side, our masculine side, is to actually marry. Now, how many understand that the word marry means to merge? And the reason we marry is because the woman was taken out of the man. A man wasn't taken out of the man. A woman wasn't taken out of the woman. A woman was taken out of the man. The idea was for two people who are opposites to merge. So you can, two men can marry, two women can marry, but they can't merge. Are you, are you following me? When you have intercourse, you become tied together. The Bible calls it a soul tie. When you have a soul tie, it's like taking two pieces of wood and gluing them together and waiting for them to dry. And then when you try to pull them apart, how many understand that when you pull those boards apart that have been glued together at 
if it, and he's, if it's done, been done right, there's going to be some of this board on this board and some of this board on this board. The point is that what God joined together, let no one separate. How many understand that God wanted children to be born out of a covenant? That's why he provided the hymen, so that the covenant could be consummated before the children were conceived. I understand how it's quiet. <laughs> point two, understand your spouse. So point one is, what was the point? <laughs> understand marriage. <laughs> point two, understand your spouse. The desire for value and equality has caused our society to try to erase gender identity. We have tried to make men women, men and women the same in our quest to make them equally valuable. Now, remember, ladies, if I say anything to offend you, I wrote the book Fashion to Rain, which basically says that men and women are equally powerful and distinctly different. The challenge is, is that if you listen to society, it says you're all the same, or you could choose your gender, it's fluid, like I feel like a woman today and a man tomorrow. I'm sorry, that just happens to be not true. Unfortunately, that statement isn't politically correct. Okay. Now, when I share these distinctions, if you could give me a little grace, because there's going to be a bunch of you like, I'm, I'm not like that. You're trying to stereotype me. And all I'm trying to do is, give, is create some reason, some sense of beginning, a place of conversation. So I want to say that there are distinctions between women, men and women. Women were born to be adored. Women think from the heart and reason from the depths of their soul. They have a high value for things like feelings. <laughs> women are intuitive by nature. Women are nurturers and settlers. They long for security. Women are stimulated by touch. A woman's sex drive decreases under pressure. I, I, I remember when I first got married. No, I remember for the first 20 years I was married. <laughs> we would make decisions. And by the way, we have always led together. Like, are you, uh, are you the head of your wife? Well, we lead together. We have always led together. Uh, even when we first got married, we lead together. And Kathy typically takes the lead when, she, when there's things she's strong in and where she's things she's passionate about. And I typically take the lead when there's things I'm strong in and things I'm passionate about. You can't make men and women the same. They're not the same. There's a reason why there's an MBA and a WMBA. There's a reason why women don't play on the same teams as men uh, in, in pro sports. There's a reason why there's no women football players. I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. I'm just trying to say... You know, men are 14% stronger and 9% faster. That's, that's just the facts. So it's not, we're not like, you're like, you're saying men are better. Men are stronger. Men are, I'm saying, no, no. When it comes to mud wrestling, I'd bet on a man. <laughs> I know some of you out there, I could whip my husband's butt. I bet, I bet you can. There's always exceptions. I get the point. I remember when the first time, I mean, I, I was married two years and Kathy somehow got pregnant and then we, <laughs> we ended up in the delivery room, which was a 28-hour delivery and I've passed out five times. The doctor woke me up five times as she screamed and I, you know, we took Lamaze. You know what Lamaze means? It's an ancient Greek word that means, hey, stupid, what the heck you're doing in here? It has nothing to do with childbirth whatsoever. 
You know, that you put a, you put like a, you put a, a focal point up and you have her look at it. Well, I'm going to save you the whole class. You, you have her look at the focal point and you get down by when she's having pants and you like, you breathe, oh, breathe, oh, breathe. It worked for about six hours. And then finally, you know, she yelled so loud, I ate the focal point, which was a Snickers bar. post-traumatic stress after that. <laughs> and I faint when I see blood, so I fainted five times in the delivery room. And when the baby came out, the doctor's like, you want to cut the cord? I said, what the heck did we pay you for? <laughs> I've been in three times in the delivery room with my wife. And I'll tell you, if any time a man thinks they are physically stronger and ignores labor, we're talking about men are stronger at some things, like mud wrestling and football. But men aren't stronger at everything. See, here's the challenge. When women wanted equal rights, we said, if you want equal rights, then you have to have, you have, you have, to have equal identity. And women should have said, okay, you stay home with the kids for three days, and I'll go to work, and we'll see how, how that works out for you. <laughs> Not that women should stay home, but you get the idea. It's like women are better at... They are stronger and faster and better at some things, but the challenge is, is that women aren't stronger at the things that men wrote the test about. You know why? Because we wrote the test in our favor. And here's the challenge. Most of society took that test, and they've, been, they've spent the last 100 years trying to be the best at the test that man wrote for themselves. And men said, we have the power. If you want to be... If you want the same power we have, then you need to be like us. That was stupid. Now, just so I can calm the, the class here, I believe women can, lead, can be governmental leaders, women can be elders, women can be church leaders. It's just the way they lead is different. I remember I started to tell you the story. I remember the first 20 years of my marriage. Kathy would say things like, we would be making a decision, maybe about buying something or doing something, you know, kind of permanent. And she'd say, I just don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about this. I'd say, well, what's the problem? See, because men like facts. We like, we like, we think from our head. We're like, and I would say, what, what, what's the problem? Like, she'd say, I just don't feel good about it. Well, what, what feeling are you having? Your feeling doesn't seem to be based in reality. <laughs> Listen, after 20 years, I figured out that her feeling was more accurate than my facts. You have no idea how many things I bought when she felt like we shouldn't, but she had no facts. I'm like, no facts means I win. Men like to think from their head. They have a high value for logic and, and facts. Does it mean they can't be intuitive? Please, this is not hard lines. Men like to conquer, build, kill. <laughs> Men are pioneers. Men like tools and powerful things. My daughter loves tools. She's amazing. She, she's like Tim Taylor. <laughs> Men are stimulated by what they see. Men's sex drive grows under pressure. And so this is, this, a man is not a woman. A woman is not a man. I wish someone would have told me that. I, I, you know, women use lots of words. 
And, and, and often the, the punchlines at the end of the story, it's the reward for listening. <laughs> and I used to do this. <laughs> Some of the ladies say, right? It means, what's the point? And, and Kathy would be like, you know, I went to the grocery store today and you know, she'd, have, she'd be in tears. I'm like, I went to the grocery store today and it was so hot out and I got out of the car and there just there were sales going on. I, Where is this going? <laughs> I do not have the attention span to endure to the end and be saved. So I would go. That communicated, I really, really, really love you. No, it did not. I remember a couple coming into my office, this is many years ago, and, and, and they had been married like 23 years, and, and, uh, and she had been saying, I, I want to get counseling, our marriage is in trouble. And he was like, oh, we're all good, everything's fine. So finally she served him with divorce papers. And he's like, I'm ready for counseling. <laughs> See, he didn't listen to the end of the story. <laughs> so they come in my office and she's, you know, she's done, she's, Bride. She's been trying to get counseling for 15 years. And so she has him against the corner, and he, I, didn't, I had never met him before, and she's like a machine gun. She's like, and you don't respect me, and you leave your underwear on the floor, and every day I come home, and you don't even say hi, you don't even give me a kiss, and, and you know, she's going on. And he's like, he, she's like 10 minutes, you know, and I'm like, I even feel bad for him, you know. <laughs> and finally, his, his anger overcomes his fear, and he yells out, I took you to Paris twice! Twice, I took you to Paris. And we had a great time. And I go, time out, time out, time out. His name wasn't John, but I say, John, you can't fix with Paris what you broke with your underwear. <laughs> you know, my dog does this when we're eating and we won't feed him. He goes, that was John. John had no clue. So he goes, I said, John, you cannot fix with a Paris trip what you broke with your underwear. So clueless. He said, I don't know what you mean. I said, you disrespect your wife every day. She says, pick up your underwear. You know she wants your underwear picked up, but you intentionally don't pick it up because you're like, I'm the king of the castle. I don't care what you think. And you think you're going to fix with an event what you communicate every day with your underwear. He goes, oh. How important is communication, which is my third point. How important is communication? What the, the message you send when I'm going... What is that saying? I don't have time to listen to you. And how many know communication isn't just words? I can't tell you how many counseling points I got. I never said anything wrong to you. <laughs> Go ahead and talk. I'm listening. Listen. When you're, guys, when you're watching a football game and your wife's talking to you and you're watching the game and you're like, I'm listening to you, she knows you can't multitask. 
Do not lie. You communicate with your words. You communicate with your eyes. Looking away communicates shame or lack of interest or disrespect or I'm distracted by something more interesting than you. With your tone of voice. I don't know what the problem is. I never say anything bad to you. Holy Scooby-Doo's, buddy. <laughs> your time, what you give time to, rushing somebody communicates you have no value for them. With your body, crossed arms, pointing fingers, hands on waist, that, that all communicates. Are you with me? I'm saying, like, Abraham Lincoln was in a, he was looking for, a, I think it was a, a person on his, um, on his cabinet. And he interviewed all these people. And this one guy interviewed amazingly. And Lincoln and I think three of his, his cabinet were interviewing this person for cabinet. And he just was you know, head and shoulders above everybody in the interview. And they said, let's hire this guy. And Abraham Lincoln said, I'm not going to hire him. I don't like his face. And one of the guys said, Abraham, you can't not hire him because you don't like his face. He goes, the man's 40 years old. If a man doesn't know how to take care of his face at 40, he's not somebody I want on my team. He's talking about his facial expression. He's talking about managing his face in an interview. You know, when someone's telling you something serious and you're smiling, <laughs> what does that communicate? You're not touching me, I don't care about you. It's sarcasm. Uh, with your money, I think somebody said today in one service, put your money where your mouth is. It's true, it's like, I love you. You love me, but you, I'm on rations. It communicates something. I'm trying to say, like, if you're just thinking words and you come in, and I don't know how many times people have sat in my office arguing over words. How many understand there's a lot more powerful ways to communicate than words? That you are not valuable or that you are. The way you dress. And ladies, I'll jump on this one for, on you. It's like, if you're in your robe all day long, every day, and your husband comes home, and it's, it, just, it just communicates, this is how I feel about you. And I understand there are reasons for that. You understand, these are not cold, hard lines. Please give me a little grace, as, as you said you would in the beginning. So, I know you're changing your mind now. <laughs> yeah, that's before you offended us so badly. So many things speak to people about how much you value them. I've told this story several times, but this is about 14 years ago, 13 years ago, we were flying home from Australia, and one of the things that's become our custom, at least my custom, is about at least once a year, usually twice a year, we'll be laying in bed at night when Kathy's not super tired, and I'll say to her, I'll make this statement, and I probably have done this for 35 of our 43 years together. Are you happy? She always says yes. I've never ha not had her say yes. If she says no one time, I'm going to fall out of bed and probably have a stroke <laughs> at the end of my life. She says yes. And I always say, is there anything I can do to make you happier? Like, is there anything you would like to do? And she, you know, she always says, no, I'm good. And I go, not even one little thing? Like, there's nothing? And, you know, over the years, it's created lots of good conversations. Some, some about, well, I feel rushed when you, 
when I talk to you, which is a little joke we made earlier, but that came out of like, I often feel rushed when you're, I'm talking to you and I'm like, great feedback. That wasn't intentional. I mean, my brain didn't know it was doing that to you. But sometimes it would be other things. So we're coming back from Australia and it's, we'd flown for hours and hours. If you've ever been to Australia, it's quite a trip. And I leaned over to her, which was, usually we do this laying in bed, and I said to her, are you happy? She said, yeah, I'm happy. Is there anything I can do to make you happier? She said, not that I could think of. I go, oh, come on, not even one thing. Now, we've been doing this for a long time. She knows that I'm not going to take no for an answer. She said, no, I'm, I'm really good. I said, not even one little tiny, tiny, tiny thing. She said, well, someday I'd like to have horses. Someday I'd like to have horses. I'm thinking, I hate horses. <laughs> My uncle had a, a ranch, had horses and cattle, and I, I, didn't, I didn't like them then. But I'm like, okay, stay connected. <laughs> Be present. She said, yeah, someday I'd like to have horses. Really? Yeah. I said, okay, when we get home, I'm going to buy you a horse. She said, oh, no, you're not buying me a horse. I said, well, I'm buying me a horse. I'm not riding it then. <laughs> she said, no, no. I said, listen, baby, you, you, you're 50 years old. How old are you going to be when you buy a horse? You're going to be so old. You're not even going to remember the horse's name. <laughs> this is a true conversation. She's like, no, honey, I'm, no, really, you know, someday, I'm like, no, there ain't no someday. I'm buying me a horse. She said, you can't buy one, you gotta buy two. <laughs> God is my witness. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, horses, they're like, they, they, they're herd people, and they, they have to herd someone else with them. It didn't make any sense to me. I figured it was one of those things that were way beyond the understanding of the intellect. Anyway, two months later, I bought her two horses. And... People come over all the time like, I heard you have horses. I'm like, no, we don't have horses. My wife has horses. And people are like, why did you buy horses if you don't like horses? Because life isn't all about me. It's not all about come in this marriage and let's do everything I want to do. We bought a little farm in Shingletown because you can't ride horses in the summer in Reading. Unless you were born in the Ozarks or something. It's like 110. So one day I'm like, she's like, I love my horses, but all summer long we can't ride. I'm like, let's buy you a farm so you could ride your horses in the cool air. She's like, yeah. You are my man. I heard you guys bought a farm. No, we didn't buy a farm. She bought a farm. <laughs> you know, I watched my wife ride out on the farm. This is yesterday. Trying to put into words a feeling, what she's teaching me. How do you feel about that? Huh? <laughs> I know what I think about it, but I have no idea what I'm feeling. I'm being mentored in feelingship. I watched my wife riding her horse with a friend yesterday. It's hard to put into words. Like, I just, I'm like, this is just so beautiful. 
just watching her having an amazing time and thinking, I got to be a part of it. There's something about loving somebody in the way they can experience it. I remember 25 years ago, I bought her a chainsaw for Christmas. And I can't even believe I said that on streaming. <laughs> Honest to God, I did. She opened it up. She tried really hard to act excited. I'm like, I bought you this steel chainsaw, man. It's got two horsepower. She's like, oh, that's beautiful. You know, it took me an entire year. Oh, another, next year I bought her a toilet seat. A padded one. I'm like, you spent a lot of time on there. You'd probably like this. <laughs> Trust me, the horse thing was a bigger victory than you can imagine. <laughs> I have such a passion for people to connect. I've done it wrong so many times. And you, you know, you learn as you grow. And you grow as you learn. I'd like to pray for you this morning. Would you stand? Hope nobody leaves mad. You know, honestly, it's sad that this isn't a politically correct message. Because it's so needed by young people and middle-aged people and older people, really. So I'm just going to pray for you. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? And Lord, first I, first I want to say this prophetically, that divorce will no longer be named among us. I pray, God, for two to become one and to actually merge. And I pray that in tough times, they would hang on even tighter. And that every test would grow their marriage. And Lord, I pray for the, those among us that aren't yet married who want to be. Lord, I pray that the, the, the man of their dreams, the woman of their dreams would come along and that there would just be a beautiful love affair, that there would be a great connection, that in our, our whole movement would be known as Song of Solomon marriages. <laughs> It'd be like, oh, those guys, they, they, are like, they are stupid romantic over there. Lord, I pray that there would be Song of Solomon marriages named among us. They, that would be... That would be the, that would be the picture that people get when they talk about Bethel marriages. Lord, we bless the women. We bless the men in our, we bless the wives, we bless the husbands, we bless the children, and we pray, God, that you would do something spectacular in them. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed that message. You know this podcast exists to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ experience all of God's goodness in every area of your life. I want you to know God's abundance from the inside out. So just a quick reminder that one of the best ways to do this is by reading my newest book, Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. It's just released and now available for purchase wherever you buy your books. Check it out if you're tired of living with the never-enough mindset and want to move into experiencing the wealth of heaven regardless of your circumstances. Don't forget to let me know what you think. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a blessed day.